Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Bay Area may be the least religious part of the United States. A plurality of residents here are unaffiliated with the church. And according to Pew Research, a full 20% describe their religious views as, quote, nothing in particular. But the country, largely the Republican Party acting through legislation, as well as the rightward lurch of the Supreme Court, is veering towards ever more conservative religious interpretations of our founding documents, traditions, and rights. What then for the Bay Area's not religious and religious people? How do these political decisions affect your own faith and affiliation with a place of worship? That conversation's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The role of religion in our lives and in our country are intertwined. Used to be that the vast majority of Americans saw themselves as members of a church, synagogue, mosque, or other place of worship. While the number who do now has declined, a very solid majority of people in the U.S. do affiliate with a religion, and most of those people identify as Christian. Meanwhile, freedom of religion aside, our actual governmental institutions have had differing relationships to religious worship and Christianity in particular. Because of the power of white evangelical Christians in the Republican Party, the religiosity of key institutions, most notably state legislatures and the Supreme Court, has ramped up. We're going to approach this topic from two different directions. To help us understand the ongoing practice of religion in America and what is commonly understood and misunderstood, we're joined by Carolyn Chen, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley and co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. You may remember her from when she came on to talk about her book, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Welcome back, Carolyn Chen. Thank you, Alexis. Happy to be here. And in the other direction, to help us get a handle on the legal and political issues that are at stake here, we're joined by Barbara Perry, Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. Great to be with you, Alexis. Uh, Carolyn Chen, let's start with you. Let's talk about some of the major kind of demographic trends in terms of religious participation that you see in the U.S. Yeah, so I think that we've seen some pretty major shifts um, in religion in the last 30, 40 years. And I think the big takeaway that we uh, from from the changes in our religious demography is that the United States is less white and less Christian. 
Um, first, um, as you mentioned, about 50 years ago, um, um, white Christians were about 80% of over 80% of the American population, and now they're only 44%. Um, and what we've seen is um, in relation to this is in a, a rise in what sociologists call the religious nuns. So the religiously unaffiliated. So today they're about, um, depending on what poll you use, they're about a quarter of the population in a place like the Bay Area, they're about 35% of the population. And what, we've, what, you, what we're seeing is that it's largely the shift that's coming from people who used to identify um, as white Christian that are now shifting into this category of religious nuns. Um, on the other hand, we're seeing this growth in non-white Christians. Um, some people call it the de-Europeanization of American mm -hmm. Christianity, and this is a result of um, immigration, um, uh, white Christians leaving, Christi white folks leaving Christianity. Um, and so we're seeing, I think, a really interesting um, kind of change in American Christianity as we see more folks of color actually, um, who are now um, in, you know, if we look at in Gen Y, um, people in their 20s, um, if we look at Christians in their 20s, about 50% of them are people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, we're also seeing some really interesting trends with um, not minority faiths, where we're seeing a slight rise in the number of minority faiths. That's because of largely because of immigration. And in that, but, you mean you don't mean minorities, quote unquote, minorities practicing religion. You mean faiths that have uh, a, a smaller yeah, representation yeah. Thank you in the for American that clarification. I would say non-Christian faiths, but you know, this is Hinduism, uh, Sikhism. Um, Buddhism, um, Islam. Mm -hmm. um, so in these religions, what we're seeing is, um, I think, a greater visibility in our society mm -hmm. so that it wouldn't be so it's not so it's it's fairly commonplace now that we, there might be a mosque in our community, there might be a Buddhist temple or a Sikh Gurdwara. gurdwara. Um, and I think that we're also seeing among many of these Asian religious traditions, for example, Buddhism and Hinduism, but we're not seeing the exact numbers rise um, in terms of their population. We're seeing an outsized influence because of their sort of secular and in their infusion into secular society. So we're mm -hmm. seeing, for instance, the influence of Buddhism in um, health practices or self-optimization practices. We're mm -hmm. seeing it, you know, in our yoga studio. We're seeing in our healthcare system. And, you know, as I've written about, we're seeing it in our corporations and our businesses and workplaces with the, you know, taking on of mindfulness and meditation, et cetera. So interesting. Barbara, you know, while all of these changes are occurring on a, on a social level, we also have within our you know, key institutions, in particular the Supreme Court, really an attempt to remake the relationship between nation and religion. You know, obviously the, the big case that people are talking about is, is, Jobs as an extension of religious conservatism. But there are a lot of other cases that came up before the Supreme Court in this round of decisions. Can you talk about how you would describe the change that the Supreme, the current composition of the Supreme Court is enacting right now? Sure. So let me give you an example. For a good long while, starting back in the 
eight, late 1800s because of immigration, interestingly enough, to, given what Carolyn just said about immigration and demographic changes, changing religious composition of the country and where society and politics go and where the law goes. Uh, but as immigration from uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe brought many Catholics and Jews to this country, presidents decided that it made political sense to put one of those groups, one Catholic and one Jew on the Supreme Court. The first Jewish justice was in 1916, Louis Brandeis, and again, a Catholic seat developed in the late 1800s. Up into the 1980s, uh, when I started studying the court as a graduate student, we had three Catholic justices, Justice Brennan, who was a liberal, Justice Kennedy uh, from the Bay Area, who became a moderate conservative and a swing voter, so sort of in the middle or right of center, and then Justice Antonin Scalia, who was very conservative. Mm -hmm. Now we have six justices of the nine who have conservative Catholic backgrounds in some way. They weren't all raised Catholic, but someone like Justice Thomas converted to Catholicism. Uh, we have Justice Gorsuch, who was raised Catholic, but became an Episcopalian. But what I'm pointing to is six conservative Catholics. Mm -hmm. And in part, the reason they were put on the court by Republican presidents was their Catholicism and conservatism went together and coordinated to be uh, a symbol uh, and an, an indication that it, particularly on something like abortion, but also religion cases would move us out of where the court typically had been, which is in that separation of church and state category. Now we're over, that's considered a more liberal approach. Now we're over into a conservative approach where government accommodates religion. And those were, those are four cases that came down just in this term alone with that accommodationist approach by these six conservative with Catholic background justices. And is that accommodation approach that you're describing, can you give us some of the, the features of it? And does it have deep roots in sort of the in American jurisprudence? It, it does, although the early courts and early cases involving the law uh, where justices and judges throughout the federal system were making these decisions. We have to remember that the 14th Amendment that didn't come into the Constitution until after the Civil War in 1868 uh, allows for, at least the way the court began to interpret it, taking the Bill of Rights guarantees and carrying them over one by one, as the court did, to the states. So it means that particularly in, for most of the cases that come out of the state system, uh, the court wasn't having to make these decisions about accommodationism. And I would say if you go back to Jefferson and Madison and George Mason, all Virginians from right where I'm sitting here in Charlottesville, Virginia, within about 30 to 60 miles. Of, mm -hmm. of, I always say, is there, was there something in the water that these people were drinking that caused them to have these constitutional views that were so similar? But what their view was, uh, was that, that we should have a separation of church and state, or at least not uh, an established church, because they had grown up in colonial Virginia, whereby the Anglican church was the established church, because mm. it, it to this day is the established church in England. Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Anglican church, even though she's the head of state as well. So they had seen their tax money going towards the Anglican church. Mind you, they were Anglicans, but they felt that this was a violation of the next component, which is free exercise of religion, because they saw discrimination against Catholics, Baptists, Quakers, anybody who was slightly different from Anglicanism. So I would say our tradition is primarily separationist, 
rather than accommodationist. But they believed that by separating church and state, it gave us the best opportunity to allow people to exercise their religion freely. So interesting. We're talking about how religion influences policy and politics at a time when Americans are really becoming more secular or at least religiously unaffiliated. We're joined by Barbara Perry, Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, and Carolyn Chen, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley and co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. And we're really hoping to hear from you on this segment about how this interplay between what's happening at the political level and the way that religion is playing in particularly in the Supreme Court, the role that it's playing there, and your own internal spiritual and religious life. So how does religion play a role in your life? And have you become more or less religious as as time has gone on? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, of course. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I've actually already got a couple of comments in. Uh, Beth writes, My personal faith as a Christian is personal and plays no role in whom I vote for. When I vote for someone, I'm looking at the bigger picture and what workable solutions the candidate encompasses. It deeply concerns me when any candidate wants to interject religion into government policies. One need only look at countries that have a state religion to see the dangers not to mention some of the most ethical, moral men and women I voted for have been non-religious. Dave writes, I am slowly becoming, I slowly became ever less religious in my teens as I came to understand that the word faith means, in part, ignoring other ideas, interpretations, and evidence. Since then, I've been non-theistic, but I continue to financially support my former church because of their good works. We'd love to hear from you again. How does religion influence your life, your political leanings? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the role that religion plays in your life as well as in sort of national life and politics and policy. We're joined by Carolyn Chen, 
the co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion and Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at Berkeley, and Barbara Perry, a Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. You know, Carol, I wanted to ask you about what you think has happened in the discussion around Christianity in the United States. You know, I think a lot of liberal listeners might say that the religious right has actually co-opted what it means to be Christian in America. Yeah, I think that if you look on the media, at the media, I think that really what's taken up all the space in the media in, in the writing on the coverage on religion and particularly politics is white Christian nationalism. So we get this sort of distorted view as if uh, all Christians are white Christian nationalists, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, there's definitely a history. Uh, you know, there is, um, you know, starting in the 1970s, um, in response, uh, the, the rise of the religious right in response to um, what they saw as eroding family values and moral issues. So in response to um, legalized abortion, gay rights, uh, the um, outlying of school prayer and school desegre desegregation, we really saw this growing alliance between the religious right and the Rep Republican Party. Um, but I think that if we really uh, look at... Um, at, uh, Christi uh, particularly at Christianity in America. I mean, there is a relationship between religion and politics for many Christians, and that doesn't have to do with the religious right. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly if we look at um, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, um, often we sort of, we forget that some of the most uh, critical social movement and social justice um, movements of the 20th century were actually led by religious leaders or religion was really fundamental. So we might think of the role of uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. Um, we might think of um, Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Movement where Catholicism, uh, Catholic symbols and theology were really very instrumental. Um, also the role of that Christians played in the anti-nuclear arms movement or the sanctuary movement. Mm -hmm. So this is often very, you know, this is often just sort of sidelined in the media and we don't have this, we don't have this view at all. Yeah. So interesting. Let's bring in our, our first caller, sir, getting some uh, personal views here. Andrew in San Rafael, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so I grew up in a small village in upstate New York and in a liberal Methodist church who were dedicated to love and peace and harmony and generating social justice. And I had a friend in high school who was a fundamentalist, and he took me to his church, and his church seemed to be based in <clears throat> fear and intimidation. And I became really alarmed by what his evangelical church was teaching, which occurred to me to be completely the opposite of what Jesus was teaching from my point of view. And as we've seen in the last, you know, 40 years, this movement of evangelical Christianity is claiming the name of Christianity for what I regard as completely anti-Christian values. And so, you know, I would love to hear the, the panelists, you know, discussion about this and how... Yeah. You know, Christianity has been hijacked in the name of white nationalism in a way that most Christians in the United States, you know, who are actually Christians would find objectionable. 
You know, Andrew, I'm curious before we let you go, what's what's happened to your own faith? I mean, did you stay religiously affiliated? Did you go to church here in the Bay, or did you kind of say, well... I, I moved to Northern California and became a Wiccan tree hugger. <laughs> I, I feel as is your I'm right in this country and this region yeah sorry right, yeah yeah I, I i do attend christian services from time to time at lake berkeley and and uh you know so forth but but basically i'm a pagan wiccan tree hugger at this point that's so interesting hey well um thank you uh so much andrew for for that story and that that contribution i think uh i had some uh, similar friends growing up uh in in washington state um want to get to uh Another uh, another comment here. Um, Jesse writes in to say, I was raised Catholic. The story of Christ always resonated with me in how he treated everyone equally with love and taught others to be and do the same. What I began to notice, even at a young age, was how rules and the dogma of the church had nothing to do with living as a faithful Christian. I left the Catholic Church when my dad died. I was 15 years old, but I never lost my faith in what it meant to be Christ-like. The majority of churches today have swayed dramatically toward a political agenda, leaving the majority of the world's belief systems by the wayside. As Americans, we should be outraged and vote for religious neutral politicians. You know, Barbara, I wanted to come to you, you know, that comment about Catholicism uh, brings up kind of one of the, the crucial moments in sort of American political religious history, which is the election of, of JFK, uh, you know, our first Catholic president, and the sort of complex of issues that were sort of attendant to that election. Can you talk a little bit about how JFK managed his religion and policy at that time? Well, he was very much like one of your listeners, Beth, the first person you you quoted uh, as having written in to talk about the fact that that she was a Christian, but that that was personal to her and that she, like Jesse, for example, didn't vote based on the president or the candidate's religious affiliation. And that's how Kennedy had to present himself. And in this recent column that I did for CNN, I pointed out that Kennedy could only get elected by proclaiming himself as someone who believed in the separation of church and state, which I think he genuinely did. But because Protestants and Protestant ministers were attacking him in September of 1960, he went before a group of Protestant ministers convening in Houston, Texas, to talk about the fact that when he would be elected, as he hoped to be president, that he would follow the Constitution, not his faith in public policy, and that the Pope would not be running the U.S. government, as some Protestants were proclaiming. So uh, it, it, it strikes me then that when the Supreme Court in 1962 handed down its decision, very separationist, saying that states could not write prayers and then compel students in public schools to say them, he was asked immediately at a press conference right after that case came down and and he said, you know, I know this will be controversial. We must all follow the Supreme Court. But he said, I think the answer to this is for parents to teach their children to pray at home and in their places of worship. So I find it such an irony that the only way he could get elected was to be separationist. And he did get about a third of the Protestant vote in 1960. Uh, but that now we have switched to this other side, gone way past neutrality into this accommodation role. You know, Carolyn Chen, um, one of the things that strikes me as, as sort of difficult to square is is some of the separation of a religious system, you know, this idea that it that it is just personal. And yet it's also a sort of moral and ethical framework. I mean, that is what these things are. So how could that not verge into the political, you know, I mean, even taking the civil rights leaders as, as an example? Yeah, right. 
Right. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, for, for many of the people that I mentioned, Martin, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, Cesar Chavez, um, we could also talk about Malcolm X for them. Um, religion was very important in terms of exactly, you know, the ethics, the theology, the vision that it provided. I think that religion was really important in these movements in the sense that it provided this organizational basis, uh, provided a sense of um, hope. Uh, you know, if you think about asking a group of people to stand in front of barking dogs that might bite you, I mean, you have to have a, you have a, you have to have a sense of conviction, right? And I think that that uh, that that that's, uh, plays a really important role um, in these political movements, um, both for you know these movements, these uh, sort of you could say progressive movements, these movements of liberation, but also uh, it's played that role also for white Christian nationalists as well. Let's bring in another caller, Eric in Santa Clara. Welcome, Eric. Yeah, hi, thank you. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I have a lot of friends in the Bay Area who are, you know, left the center. And, I, you know, I think it, they, they seem to be somewhat hostile towards the whole concept of religion. And I think they miss a major opportunity. And, you know, the, the, the lower classes in the U.S., the, the poor and the lower class, you know, they're much more religious than, than the wealthy. And, you know, uh, people of color in general are much, much more religious than, uh, than, uh, than white people. And I think they're missing a, an opportunity to make an alliance between those groups. You know, these religions, in, in addition, I, I really love what has just been said, you know, about how the, you know, the left has been strengthened by religious convictions. You know, but also even just from a pure economic uh, viewpoint, you know, the Catholic uh, school system, for instance, has been an, an, an escalator for the working class in, in the U.S. and has, you know, lifted some, you know, the, the Irish were a, you know, one of the poorest uh, uh, ethnic groups in the U.S., and now they're, they're among the, the wealthiest, actually. And so I think that they're just sort of missing a lot of the benefits and a lot of the comfort and a lot of the strength um, that religion provides these groups um, by kind of looking down on them and not really understanding uh, the, the role that religion plays in their lives. Yeah. Uh, thank you for, uh, for those points, Eric. And I think, uh, Carolyn Chen, did you want to note anything on those demographics? It seemed like it was in line with the things that your uh, center has Yeah, found. I think that, you know, I think that that uh, the, that caller, what he said is, 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 you know, many of that, I, I, I would agree with in the sense that, um, well, for one thing, I mean, there's, there's a good reason why we are paying so much attention and why we pay so much attention to white evangelicals and the work, you know, what they've done politically. I mean, even though they've declined to, uh, they're, maybe 15 years ago, they were about a quarter of the American population. Um, today, they've declined to about 15% um, Amer- um, uh, white evangelicals of the American population, mm-hmm. but they compose a steady 25% of American voters. Um, and so they're a really solid voting bloc. So they're a very, very powerful group that sort of kind of sucked up all the air when it comes to the conversation on religion and politics. Um, but I think that this the caller is right that He's absolutely right that um, when we look at co-religionist groups and we compare them by race, 
racial minorities are always more religious than their white religious counterparts. And that's a part of the story that is missing. Mm. And we, we, we fail to understand, I think, as a larger American society, um, really the important role that faith communities play for, for some of our most marginalized communities. Uh, let's bring in uh, Jenny from Petaluma. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thank you. So um, I went to a classic Catholic school for nine years. Um, it was pretty traumatizing experience. Um, lots of shame, guilt, um, anger, and judgment. And it took me about the next 20 years or so to kind of let go of a lot of my own hatred of religion and Christianity more broadly as a result. And ended up at a local public school where my then kindergartner was quietly indoctrinated by the music teacher at our public school called Liberty Elementary School. And we um, kind of raised it to the principal level and a full investigation was done and they found out that this had been going on for a long time. And um, the problem repeated itself and the teacher, the teacher was never removed and we ended up having to pull our kid from the school. And it just brought up all my own fears and concerns around um, the privacy of religion and my own beliefs and my right to raise my child with our belief system. And I just wanted to kind of raise that perspective of, you know, how we're entering a new era as parents and as a society where we may not be able to stand up for our children and our own beliefs as easily. Um, yeah. So I just wondered what your panelists had to say about my concerns. Well, and stories. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that uh, to Barbara in, in just a second. But I, at first I wanted to ask you, Jenny, like what have those conflicts over the kind of institutions of religion done to sort of your own internal, I, I guess I'll just call it spirituality? Yeah, I mean, it. I think that, that what was so hard for me was that I just went. I went to a place of like anger and hatred for Christianity for a long time, and it took a long time to shed those layers and be able to see who I was and what my own belief. And it wasn't until recently when I read about humanist belief system that I was like, "Oh, that's me. That's what I believe, and that's how I, my husband and I, like to lead our home and our family." It took a long time to shed those layers of shame and anger and all those feelings in order to see myself. Um, and I think that's one of the concerns I have about a, a world or a government where we have more religion is that a lot of people may not, that may not be the right path for them. But when you have that forced and um, that, a forced religion on you, you, you do turn to kind of shame or anger or fear. Um, yeah. You know, um, Barbara, in your work, you know, you've advocated for more separation between church and state or more of a defined line. What is it that you worry most about with that line blurring? Well, as I said earlier, these three approaches that justices and judges have taken of either being separationist or being neutral towards religion or on the other side of the scale being accommodationist. My fear is that as we have moved with this term of the court, particularly uh, seems squarely into accommodationism, that we're going not only to lose the separationist component of our founding and of the requirements, in my view, of the Constitution, but we're again moving out of neutrality so that Jenny's point about a public school teacher indoctrinating a child uh, into a belief system that the parents don't agree with. I think that's where, for example, the football coach in Bremerton, Washington, who was sided with by the six Catholic members of or previously Catholic members in some case on the court, but certainly conservatives. Um, you know, my, my view on that is, well, then what happens if um, 
as one of the callers indicated, his, you know, Wiccan tree hugging self becomes the football coach. You know, will that community in Bremerton, Washington be as accommodating towards that kind of religion? So part of it is just my view of what the founders thought. If you have a religion or religious tradition that becomes accommodated, then what happens to others who aren't in that faith tradition? Um, so that's, that's just my fear, uh, is that the wall of separation between church and state is, as I say, either brick by brick cum- crumbling or a bulldozer's taken to it yeah you know listener just a quick quick follow-up there one listener writes you know if this extremist right-wing court majority adheres to a so-called originalist interpretation of our constitution if there was any concept that the framers had in mind it was the separation of church and state why then are they not doing that and i guess you know the the explanation here barbara i'm looking for is like what is the alternate history that they're at least trying to rely on in making some of these decisions Yes, and I don't mean to indicate that every founder or every person in in the founding era uh, was a separationist when it came to church and state issues, uh, because we know that there is a long strain of accommodationism in our country. Let us think about In God We Trust uh, on the coinage or the uh, One Nation Under God phraseology added to the pledge in the 1950s as an anti-communist statement. So we do have another long, long tradition of accommodation. Uh, but, you know, my view is that that takes us to a spot where if we say, oh, well, our founders, if we're going to have an original interpretation of the Constitution, our founders were Christian and we're a Christian nation. Uh, this is you know Jeffersonian point from his notes on the state of Virginia, where he says, if you look back through human history, if you don't allow people freely to exercise their religion and you try to impose a religion upon them, what he said, what does that mean? You either have a half of the society that is foolish to try to do that. And the other half are hypocrites because they're being forced to practice a religion they don't ag- agree with. And he says, we have burnt people at the stake and that doesn't change people's religious views. More uh, comments are coming in. Um, Valerie writes in to say, as a grateful follower of the teachings of Jesus and active in my Methodist church family, I'm really horrified by the way the word Christian has been co-opted by politically radical people to further a very un-Jesus-like agenda. I tend not to use the word Christian to describe myself, even though I certainly am because I don't want to be associated with the radical right. It's a difficult time to be someone who believes that Christian should be associated with only one word, love. We'd love to hear from you, and we are hearing from you. These are fascinating comments to read, your own internal struggles with what's happening, uh, in, in the sense that you know religion is playing a stronger and stronger role in our political institutions. So what's that doing to religion's role in your own life, whether you're Jewish, Muslim, Christian, any of the denominations? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Eight, six. We will also get to some of the atheists who've been writing in the uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum and the emails forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how religion influences politics and policy at a time when many Americans are actually becoming more secular with Carolyn Chan, an associate professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley and co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. She's also the author of Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley, as well as Barbara Perry, presidential studies director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Uh, Got a bunch more uh, comments coming in. Uh, Joanne writes, I'm a recently retired Presbyterian pastor in the Bay Area. My faith has less to do with beliefs and doctrines and more to do with following Jesus, who taught that above all else, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So it is fundamental to my faith to support LGBTQ plus rights and women's rights, including bodily autonomy that black lives matter, that we must care for God's creation, that white Western imperialism and nationalism don't achieve the justice that God desires for all God's world. These are not political positions, they're faith positions, but I live them through my political involvement. You know, Carolyn, it's kind of, I I mean, I find this comment fascinating because I think if you were to ask evangelical Christians about their positions, their political positions, they probably do describe them as faith positions as well. Yes, I think they would describe them as faith positions. I think that um, we see um, an emphasis more of the religious right really talking about, you know, quote unquote, moral issues. Um, And, you know, the word that they used in, I would say, in the late 20th century of, you know, family values. So they would see them as faith issues, but I think that there's more of an emphasis on what you know, they say is morality. Whereas I think that for Christians who are more liberal, there's more of a focus on, um, on justice, um, instead. Um, I, I, you know, Alexis, I just wanted to bring something up because so many of the comments have been talking about like this feeling that, um, among many of the Christian, um, uh, people have been calling in about Christianity being, being co-opted. And I wanted to relate that to the rise in religious nuns that we've seen, um, you know, since the, um, since we've been polling, um, taking religious poll, the polls for religious affiliation in the United States since the 1950s, the number of Americans who identify as religiously unaffiliated has often has stayed at a steady 7% um, until the 1990s, where it doubled Mm. to 14% and since has been climbing, you know, ever since. And there was a study that was done by Berkeley sociologists, Mike Hallett and Claude Fisher. And they found evidence that that change really had to do with the rise of the religious right in the 1980s and 90s, kind of, you know, co-opting this identity of Christian. And so what you saw was that moderates and liberals, uh, political moderates and liberals were dropping out of the Christian, were were disidentifying as Christian because they didn't want to identify anymore with 
a religion that had been that was now aligned with you know the Republican Party and conservative agenda. Hmm. Let's bring in uh, Dorothea from Berkeley. Welcome. Hi. Um, so I'm Jewish, and I find it hard to believe that if a Jewish coach got onto the uh, sports field and started praying, that it would be acceptable, or a Muslim. So that's my first thing is that I think I'd like to hear a comment about how the Supreme Court has decided to empower the states that are pretty much fundamentalist against the other states that aren't, that are really for freedom of religion. And uh, how is this adding to the upcoming civil war that a lot of people are talking about? Mm. So I'd like some comment on that. Yeah. Barbara thank Perry, you. yeah, thank you for for that comment, Dorothea. And uh, Barbara, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because it does seem like one of the reasons we had uh, a separation of church and state was actually to prevent, you know, what was probably considered then to be sectarian conflict. That's absolutely right, that the founders feared uh, by this experiment in a democratic republic Uh, And that was quite unusual to have in the late 1700s, but their enlightenment thought took them there to having a role for the people, but not the sole role, because they did fear demagogues, for example. But they also knew that throughout human history, religion was one of the main reasons for countries to go to war in civil war. And they had seen that in England, obviously, and they had seen it throughout Europe. And we see that today. Look at Northern Ireland, look at Israel, look at the Balkans. Uh, look at Iraq. Uh, and, and so they knew that the, re- the reasoning for wanting free exercise of religion was freedom and liberty, but also to keep government out of religion. So I completely agree with Dorothea. Um, and I should tell her that um, my mentor here at the University of Virginia, who's now passed on at 98 a couple of years ago, but he was a Holocaust survivor, ran from the Nazis at age 15 in 1937 and became a renowned constitutional and Supreme Court uh, political scientist and scholar. And so he taught me what that is like to have to run for your life because of your religion. And I think that's also part of the reason that I'm a separationist. Also, I'm Catholic. uh, And I was very pleased that John Kennedy won the election in 1960. My mother took me to see him uh, when he campaigned in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. And she was not a historian or political scientist or involved in politics. But I think she was drawn to him because of his Catholicism. Um, So I think that Dorothy is exactly right. If it had been uh, a Jewish coach or any other coach with any other affiliation other than Uh, sort of right-wing Christian fundamentalism that the community would not have been as supportive. Yeah. We're talking about how religion influences politics and and policy, and we're talking about your own relationship to your religion in that uh, emerging context. Uh, Carolyn Chen is joining us. She's the Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley and the Berkeley. She's the co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. We also have Barbara Perry, who just heard, who's a Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. And, you know, we, uh, we're hearing these great stories from you about the role that religion plays or does not play in your life and what role you think it should play in American political life. Give us a call, 866-733-6786, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, or you can email forum at kqed.org. Let's go to uh, Frank in Mill Valley. Welcome to the show, Frank. Thank you. I'm uh, just as a bona fides, I'm part of that growing 14% of militant atheists uh, 
who sees religion as a source of a huge amount of evil in the world. But what I wanted to bounce off the panel was a quote that I ran into from Barack Obama, who said, look, I don't mind that your beliefs are influenced by your religion. But when it comes time for you to try to convince me socially or politically that I should act in certain ways, it's important that you use secular reasoning with me uh, to try to enlist me in, in that process. You can't, you can't just point to your religion as, as the source of all truth. And I, I thought that was a useful way to divide the, uh, the argument, to separate the arguments without denying the validity of somebody's faith. Well, well put, Frank. Thank you uh, so much for that. You know, Barbara, I, I mean, these arguments do come up before the court and have been, it almost seems like, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the the third way that you describe um, that the court has sometimes approached this, which is to say neutrality or, or something along those lines. Yes, and there's a, a famous test that was used by just moderate justices like Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy uh, from the Bay Area, um, and Justice Souter. And the, it was called the Lemon Test. It actually went back to Chief Justice Berger. Uh, and it, it had several components to it. And one was that uh, the, the state could not engage with religion, and it involved a Pennsylvania attempt to give aid to religious schools. And it, it, according to the court, government had to maintain this neutrality towards religion, and the policy towards religion had to have a secular purpose. It could neither advance nor inhibit religion, and it had to avoid excessive entanglement between church and state. And so my sense would be if, if people are concerned about accommodationism, but they don't want to go all the way to the other side of that spectrum to separationism, this neutrality is really a good moderate position to have. And it was one that was embraced by uh, religiously oriented justices. Justice O'Connor is Episcopalian, Justice Kennedy, a moderate Catholic, uh, Justice Souter, um, a moderate Episcopalian. Uh, and so they found a home there. And But we've gone, again, beyond that into this accommodationism. And I really like Frank's uh, comment about Barack Obama is certainly somebody who is uh, very much given to careful reasoning by virtue of his law background and a, and a brilliant mind, but that it, it needs to be secular. But he doesn't mind that you can believe whatever you want to believe. And the Supreme Court had taken that view towards freedom of religion throughout the time that it had been making these judgments, particularly in the 20th century and into now. That it, it, As Thomas Jefferson said, it, it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg if my neighbor believes in one God or 20 gods. In other words, believe whatever you want. When you want the government to believe what you believe and take action on it, that's where we get into a situation that's problematic. Yeah. You know, one listener writes, uh, what is the point of living a life guided by faith and its accompanying moral and ethical compass? If you don't take it to the public square, it strikes me as self-serving and an easy out to claim a life of faith without living those values out in the world. And that's political. Of course, as Frank notes, possible to the public square requires a different set of uh, argumentation from, you know, just the, the truth of uh, as, as believed by any particular uh, religion. You know, Carolyn Chen, um, another listener tweets, Carolyn Chen suggests at the end of her book that everyone finds something sacred. I think for a good portion of our population's politics or more accurately what politics helps the individual distinguish themselves is placed at the center instead of community centered entities. Um, I'd, I'd love you to kind of reflect 
on that. Uh, if you think, you know, in your book, you argue kind of work has taken the place of, of religion uh, or as the place where sacred things happen. Do you think that politics ha- has taken that role for some people, too? Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, I want to make this distinction between spirituality and religion. Um, spirituality is perhaps the personal way that we connect to the divine or we feel, find meaning and fulfilling and purpose. Um, religion is that collective enterprise. It is something where we find belonging and identity. It's an organization. And I think that for, I think that for many people, it is through politics that they find that source of identity and belonging and purpose in society. Um, and I think it can be a really, you know, powerful source of sacredness um, for for folks. So very much so, I would agree. Yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of different questions here uh, and, and comments from listeners. Um, Iris writes in to say, "I'm a Buddhist who was raised atheist by ex Catholic parents, traumatized out of the religion by Catholic school, and married into a Jewish family." This whole discussion has been about Christianity. Not exactly, but I understand what you're saying. We're not all Christians, and the accommodationist approach seems to primarily accommodate and codify Christianity over all other religions. As a Buddhist with Baha'i and Jewish family members, this is personally very relevant to me and deeply frustrating. Um, Barbara, like, do you talk to me a little bit about the accommodationist approach and non-Christian faith. Well, Iris is right that when the courts have tended towards accommodationism, they've tended towards the majority, at least up until now, uh, as Carolyn has explained in demographics. But for most of our history, we were a majoritarian Christian nation in terms of our population. And so that is absolutely true. And that's exactly what those who believed in freedom of religion by virtue of creating separation between church and state believed at the founding that if you accommodate, if the government accommodates religion, it's probably going to accommodate the either the majority religion or the religion of those in power, even if they're not in the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she's exactly right to put her finger on that, that that has been, that has tended to be our history when we've gone to this other extreme um, on the spectrum to accommodationism. Um, so I, I think that that's what we have to be careful of. And the person who wrote in to talk about faith, it may be meaningless if it's not brought into the public square. Separationism doesn't say to an individual, you can't bring your religion into the public square and fight for it and in your beliefs. You just can't expect the government in the public square arena, for, for example, through public schools, to be supporting your particular belief system. Let's bring in uh, Reverend Carla in San Jose. Hi, good morning. I am a minister at Congregational Church of San Jose, and I am deeply concerned about the takeover of the Christian religion by the white nationalist Christian movement, which is basically um, a political movement, and it gives... Christians a bad name. It's taken the term social justice and twisted that all around to be negative. And it's frankly antithetical to the entire message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I guess I have a a bigger concern than most people about this, 
but it is a real thing, and I feel it's a militant takeover. Yeah. That's my comment. No, you know, uh, Reverend Carla, I mean, so within the church, what do you do about it then? Well, we kind of do the opposite. We try to p- preach all-inclusive love of all of God's people and Whatever religion they may be are welcome to our church. We are unabashedly Christians and follow Christian statements of faith. But in that, we don't exclude others, which leaves us very vulnerable to um, people who have ill intentions coming into our church. So we have a lot of security issues, and we also have concern for the lack of leadership by youth because of this white Christian nationalist movement, they are so turned off to it, and rightly so. And But then the churches who are progressive are aging out. Mm. Well, thank you, Reverend Carla, for, for that perspective. Very, very interesting uh, coming from you and your, and your perspective. Thank you. Um, Ian writes in to say, so, so many calls and comments, trying to get to as many as we can here. Um, Ian writes in to say, you know, I took my daughter, now six, to an Episcopalian church as a baby because I wanted her to grow up in a community and have connection to my faith and hopefully develop her own. It's clear to me that most of my peers in the Bay Area don't have this kind of community or connection to faith. As traditional connections fade, how are people finding this meaning and bond to others around them? As we emerge from the isolation of the early pandemic, I worry about a generation of kids who are lonely, depressed, and looking for ongoing, deep human connection. Where will they go? Uh, Carolyn Chen, do you want to give you the last word? We've only got a few seconds here. Um, do you want to respond to Ian's comment? Sure. I think that that's a. I think that's a real concern. Um, loneliness is a social epidemic in the United States now, particularly among the younger generation, and um, particularly in the Bay Area. You know, religious participation is much lower than other parts of the country. And I think that this is also part of a larger story of over the last 50, 60 years, where we've seen this decline in civic participation. So it is not just our religious faith communities, but it are other forms of social belonging that have really declined. And so I think this, this is a really important concern that I hope you know, faith communities and other organizations really take up um, and think about for our youth. We've been talking about religion in America in your lives at a time when a really particular conservative interpretation is ascendant within the Supreme Court. We've been joined by Barbara Perry, Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you so much for joining us, giving us this context. Thank you, Alexis. And we've also been joined by Carolyn Chen, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley and co-director of the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion. She's the author of Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Alexis. And thanks to all of you listeners and commenters. We really appreciated hearing your stories of religion. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.